So let's get to the topic at hand. We're going to talk today about external sales organizations, and we're going to talk about market trends. We're going to talk about the different strategies and models when, when working with sales orgs, uh, how to find a good one, pros and cons. And then we're going to talk about how to onboard a sales organization effectively and make sure you're looking out for your customer. So we have a great lineup of panelists today to answer all of these questions. So let's start by bringing up Brian White. He is the research analyst. He is a research analyst at Wood McKenzie and Power and Renewables. He was on our last town hall and joined us for a recent podcast as well. Thanks for coming back, Brian. Great to see you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to see everyone. And we also have Valerie Serrato. She is the vice president of residential business at Sunworks. Hi, Valerie. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And we have James Lee. He's the director of enterprise partnerships and partner development at Sonova Energy Corporation. James, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. And last but not least, we have Rachel Shapira. She's the director of residential finance here at Bewa RE Solar Systems. Rachel has been super helpful uh, working with the marketing team to set this town hall up. So thanks, Rachel, for helping us with that and welcome. Hi, thanks for doing this, Tom. So Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming and sharing your minds with us today. Let's kick it off um, looking at the market and what trends the panelists are following. And I'd like to start with Brian, uh, and he follows trends and data for a living. Uh, Brian, what can you share with the audience today about the originators' landscapes? How are solar contractors using them? Uh, what are the trends and what are, you, what are you tracking for us? Sure. Yeah. So I know we'll go a little bit deeper into actual strategy uh, a little later, but at a high level, um, one way we see contractors using these organizations is to expand its new geographies and and offer new products. Um, and what I'm tracking closely at Woodmac is um, how it seems like a lot of installers lately are kind of reevaluating their approach to the sales process. I think a lot of that is related to you know the shakeup that was COVID, but they're trying to decide you know how much of this process to take on in-house versus outsourcing to a third party, which is a really big reason why I was really excited to join the conversation today. But a big reason that this is such a, a hot topic is we all know how high of a cost customer acquisition can be. It's obviously a huge um, portion of the cost stack. It can be a lot of work and effort and uh, very capital intensive to invest in internal sales teams. It can also be expensive to partner with some of these organizations as well, but it kind of comes down to a cost benefit. So it, uh, it's a hot topic and I'm, I'm excited to be part of the conversation. Great. Uh, Valerie, why don't we bounce to you? Um, what, what, are you tracking anything high level in the market? Uh, what are you seeing? I definitely agree with Brian. You know, successful businesses are continually looking for ways to capture more market share by reaching more customers and selling through a network of channel partners provides that great leverage to your business. It broadens your reach and gets your products and services out in front um, of a more broad audience than may be achievable by your in-house team. So I think that companies are looking at different options, especially since um, the COVID environment has made it somewhat difficult to obtain sales. So being creative is what will make your company successful. Mm -hmm. James, how about you? Um, any, anything you want to call out here? And to um, to Brian's point, are there any um, things you want to talk uh, mention about costs of customer acquisition? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Brian and Valerie nailed it on the head, right? At the end of the day, there's just so many resources and and, and partnerships and and you know tools and services out there available for solar installers. Whether you know you're talking about um, software services or sales origination partnerships, potentially that you can look into. And 
um, really, you know, when I look at it, it really comes down to expertise, right? Sales organizations are successful because they're expert sales people, right? And, you know, that's what they invest in. That's what, you know, their business is built around. And, you know, if, if you're a contractor and, and you don't have that expertise, you know, that's a great way for you to leverage, you know, strategic partnerships in order to grow your business as an installer. I think, you know, at the end of the day, the most important piece is, you know, what's right for your business, right? And, and whether you decide to go with the way of partnering with sales organizations or whether you decide to invest in an in-house sales team, um, you know, that that's ultimately up to, you know, you as a business owner and, and what makes the most sense for you. But, you know, there's no really right or wrong answer at this point. It just depends on what you're capable of and what you're prepared for as a business. Rachel, I want to I want to bounce to you. You were the one who brought this up as a topic for for as a town hall, um, and you've got your ear to the ground in a lot of ways. Are you are you hearing things like why did this pop up for you as something you wanted to chat about? Well, this topic has been coming up for the last several years. I've been you know working in the B two B environment, um, working at companies that serve solar installers. Whether it was coming up as a source of risk or compliance issues um, on the finance side of things, or whether it was coming up as a as an as an effective tool for growth, I've been seeing this trend for the last several years, and um, particularly over the last over the last six to nine months, I've been talking to a lot of business owners who've been wondering how do I scale my business? Solar is growing so quickly. How do I make sure my company does not miss out on it? And so they're like, as James was saying, they're asking themselves all the critical questions around what they need to do to scale their business for the one, two three and five years ahead. And this is one of the topics or questions that come up around, should I be considering this? And if I do decide to go forward, how do I manage the risk that comes with it? Mm -hmm. And so I thought we could dive into it together with um, the great team we have assembled here. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the strategy and the different models that that EPCs might employ when working with sales orgs. And Valerie, I want to I want to come to you with a specific example. But if a company wants to enter a new market, um, going with an originator might be one route to do this. Can can you talk about that a little bit with us? Absolutely. Um a sales originator partnership has, you know, pros and cons. One of the pros is definitely being able to um, scale into a new market cost effectively. You don't have the overhead, the whole cost associated with organically growing. So that's definitely um, a way that you can use a local sales channel partner to enter a market that you've not been in before. Um, as James mentioned, they're the expert uh, in the industry. So you're wanting to, you know, ask them the questions um, around their expertise in not only as a sales organization, but also in the region that you're trying to attack. So growing out to new markets is 100% cost-effective way to use a sales channel partner. Mm -hmm. James, any, any follow-up to that? You know, what, what are the reasons why a solar contractor might be thinking about working with, a, with an originator? I know you touched on some of them earlier, but like, let, let's get a little more granular if we can. Yeah, you know, again, you know, I circle back to as a solar contractor and installer, you know, what, what's the mission and vision of your business, right? If, if you're asked, if you're looking for that one answer, I mean, Brian nailed it on the head, it's the cost of customer acquisition. It costs a lot of money to scale up a sales team. Um, and we're not just talking about marketing efforts and all that, but you have your, you know, co cost of hiring people, right? Which, which can add up depending on how many people you want to bring into the organization. So, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at, you know, why I should do this, right? Well, really, you should be looking at to, you know, 
what do I want my business to be? As Rachel mentioned, where do, where do we see this business one, two, five years from now? Um, you know, I know many contractors who are kind of satisfied with where they are, right? And, and, and they can run a great business, right? And they don't have this grandeur vision of entering multiple markets or whatnot. And then there are some that want to grow and, and want to become a, a bigger player, right? In, in certain markets, whether it's, you know, within a certain state or a region of the country. And, you know, if, if, if you have certain strategies that, you know, encompass high growth, right? High revenue, um, you know, scaling to a point where you want your business at a certain level, uh, partnering with great sales organizations is going to help you get there a lot quicker than trying to scale a sales force yourself. Brian, to the to the reducing overhead or just customer acquisition costs, do you have any follow up data you could share with us, and then maybe you know talk about the different strategies uh, involved in working with outside sales orgs? Sure. Yeah. So as I'm sure the audience is well aware, um, the cost of customer acquisition can wide widely differ depending on the size of the contractor, which uh, is mostly rooted in the in the way that different installers of varying magnitudes utilize different strategies. Um, so you see, for the for the most part, aside from probably just Tesla, which is an exceptional case, the the largest players have the highest customer acquisition costs, um, usually north of a dollar a watt. Uh, it's expensive to be having a national presence and to be knocking on doors. It's typically a bigger cost lead gen and sales generation strategy. But um, you know, mid-sized and larger regional contractors can somewhere sometimes see between 75 cents to a dollar a watt in costs, whereas small contractors, um, I've seen r- reports of cost of 50 cents a watt or, or even lower. Um, you know, they're relying a lot more on the lower cost methods of acquiring customers, such as referrals, and you know any any range in between there uh, depends on you know the different kind of ways um, you're acquiring customers, whether that's door knocking, looking at um, a presence in retail stores and community events, you know when that was more prevalent before COVID, and of course you know. You know, the compensation that is um, tied to working with some of these originators and third-party organizations also plays into that as well. Great. Valerie, you, you chatted um, last week with us and you mentioned like a, a dual model, you know, where you're working some with your internal sales orgs and then you're also employing a, an external sales force. So can you talk about that, that relationship and balancing those two and yeah, achieving your goals with, with that in mind? Absolutely. We have had some great partnerships with Sales Channel Partners, and we currently still do. And we've had some challenges with certain Sales Channel Partners that we no longer work with. And we also have an in-house team that we've recently developed that has come aboard since August. So I've worked with both models, uh, only in-house sales, only Sales Channel Partnerships, and now this dual model. Um, I think that all sales vehicles are essential for meeting the anticipated solar demand because each method has the ability to succeed and then each has its advantages and disadvantages. Having a dual model really gives you the best of both worlds. You can have more control over the messaging in your inside sales team, of course, um, although there's a cost associated with that. You can plan your sales projections and your material lies, et cetera, around more of your in-house team um, versus your sales channel partners who are really their own company and their own entity with their own agenda. Um, So it's really understanding um, exactly what James alluded to earlier. It's what is best for your company. So figuring out that business model and your agenda will really determine which method or hybrid of methods works best for you. Is there a way that you can think about how to balance building your own internal sales team versus working with an outside sales org and when that should happen? Any thoughts there? 
it can be difficult if you're not setting the expectation up, up ahead of time and being very clear on the path that each organization has, your in-house team and the sales channel partnership. Um, for us, it's really about a territory and region. I have in-house sales attacking one certain region and territory, and then my sales channel partnerships um, helping with the growth and expansion of the company. So having it really set clearly what your expectations are for each group. And then again, just making sure that your business model um, and agenda and mission supports both. Mm-hmm. Great. Rachel, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, I would also say, I think um, when you're planning ahead, I think a lot of organizations do this as a means to cut costs because they think that if they're reducing their fixed um, headcount costs and all the secondary costs that come with employing a team, they assume that their costs will decline. Um, But there is margin compression that can happen uh, with the dual model because instead of having um, one company need to take profit from a sale to a homeowner, now you know, two companies or potentially three, if you're using subcontractors to help with some of the installation, have to take a share of the margin. And so one thing that I think a lot of companies that have gone this route have struggled with is being realistic about how much margin they need to account to keep their own team happy and afloat. I can't tell you the number of times I I had a day, I think it was a month ago, I was talking to a originator that had was new to setting up an installation team. And they were they because they believed that the installer was keeping all the profit. And then my very next meeting was with an installer who was setting up their own in-house sales team for the first time because they think the orig- they thought the originators were keeping all the profit. And I, I, I do think that there it probably depends on some very uneven contracts. I think some of it comes down to what happens in the negotiations or the arrangements that EPCs make with sales orgs individually. But sometimes I also think that, you know, solar installation is a fairly tight margined industry, especially if you compare it to a lot of other types of businesses out there. And it may just be that, you know, things get tight when two companies or three companies have to share in the profit margin. Mm -hmm. Valerie, did you want to add something to that? Yes, I absolutely agree with you 100%. But it is perception and how you set up the agreement as well, because typically under the SCP sales channel partnership umbrella um, are the costs of the advertising, the purchasing of the leads, the sales associate salaries, potentially um, management, this infrastructure, et cetera. So really taking a look at your business um, and your numbers and your data for that business and seeing which one is actually more cost effective. There's a lot of perceptions out there that this model makes sense because you don't have to pay for advertising or you don't have to do some of the things that I just mentioned. However, taking into account that you do still have to manage these sales channel partners. So that does take um, infrastructure, that does take additional team members. Um, And then again, having the ability to, for example, purchase material based on a, a very realistic sales projection versus being at the mercy of an outside company who's going to basically do what's best for that company. So there's a lot of um, things to consider monetarily, but then also the other side of the, of your reputation, um, their performance, et cetera. I would also add there's sometimes secondary costs, depending on um, who owns the risk, if customer expectations are not met on a contract, or if there's a miscommunication in terms of what is spoken about at the kitchen table and then what the EPC understands they're signing up for, they'll often end up being a gap between what the homeowner expects and what actually happens, which is how you lead, What is which is the exact formula for leading to an unhappy customer or potentially a compliance issue with your finance provider and in the most extreme situations. And so there's usually going to be a cost associated with making that customer happy, if only to maintain your online reputation and keep your finance partner happy. And depending on who owns that cost, very often it's the EPC, though some EPCs negotiate to share some of the risk or to move some of the risk over to the originator depending on how that's arranged, I think a lot of people are not budgeting for the risk of how 
how you manage or how you resolve situations where homeowner expectations are not met. Mm -hmm. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. And we could talk more about onboarding in, in a few minutes, Brian, um, I saw you take yourself off mute. Did you want to add something to the hybrid model or this discussion? Yeah. I just wanted to go back to a couple points that uh, Valerie made about sort of this dual approach. Um, I think everything she said is completely valid. And I just wanted to add that I think one thing that COVID illuminated was it's kind of good to have a diversification amongst your sales strategy. You know, maybe there's a situation where internally you're struggling to generate sales based on where you're focused. But uh, while, while that's drying up, you have a third party organization kind of helping you out to funnel through opportunities to kind of keep your, your business going. Um, I think we saw a lot of that, you know, back in the spring and summer as businesses were trying to kind of figure out all the craziness. And then just to kind of tie that back to something that James mentioned about specialization. One thing we see in the hybrid model is, you know, we're talking a lot about sales and marketing and there's different ways that that comes into play. Uh, different companies coming in at different parts of the process, lead generation sales. One thing I've seen, you know, is, is companies that really, they're, they're more involved in lead gen and appointment setting which is part of the sales process. But then once that appointment is set, it kind of gets transferred to the, the contractor EPC, which then closes the sale, um, which, you know, some folks might say that there's some inefficiency in the kind of divvying up of that process. But I think you're also seeing some, some good syner synergization synergization with, uh, you know, the fact that you have that specialization going on and can focus on closing that sale. Um, so that hybrid model has a lot of benefits. Mm, great points. So when we've, we've talked about some of the strategies and we could talk more about the pros and cons, and I definitely want to get to those, but how does an EPC go about finding um, a sales uh, originator to work with? James, maybe we can go to you. Like, yeah, any thoughts on that? Like, are you tapping your network? Are you, you know, <laughs> is this referrals? Like, how do you, how does a contractor find the right organization to work with? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, if I knew the answer, I'd, I'd be a, you know, go get my contractor's license right now. Um, <laughs> but um, the easiest answer there is who's in your network, right? Um, you know, as a solar contractor, you, you know, in, in, in someone in the industry, you're going to have a network, right? And if, if that's an area that you want to build and invest in, the first thing you should do is reach out to your network and, and see if there's anyone that they can connect you with. Um, that either is a part of a sales organization or B uh, that knows people right within um, that, that has that type of model. Also highly recommend attending um, industry related events. You know, I know COVID has, you know, reduced our ability to go to these large scale, you know, conventions and, and seminars and whatnot. But, you know, if, if you're not coming to these types of events, you're missing out, right? Because, there are people who represent sales organizations, um, you know, on these types of town halls or, or panels. And, um, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're people that you can definitely interact with and, and, and utilizing your network to, to really start reaching out and, and letting people know, hey, I'm, I'm here. This is my business. Th these are my value props of why my business is, um, you know, someone that you would want to partner with. And people are always willing to have discussions, right? That's the great thing about this industry is, you can always have a conversation around your business and people want to learn more about you. Uh, it's up to you to really, really invest into wanting to build that type because there's a lot of people who want to dip their water in. And, um, you know, when it comes to making strategic partnerships, right, I think both parties want to understand that 
this is something that is going to be invested in and it's going to be a long-term type of uh, strategy rather than something that, hey, I think I might want to check it out, right? That, that doesn't build confidence mm-hmm. as you go out and reach out to folks. Mm-hmm, totally. Valerie and Brian, I'd love to hear from both of you, not only how do you find the originator, but how do you, you know, attract a good originator, I think is another question. And Valerie, I see your hand up, so feel free to comment on, that, on my question or another one. Thanks, Tom. I was going to mention LinkedIn. LinkedIn has become such a, an amazing connection tool. I've used it. I use it constantly when someone, when I have a new partnership or, or someone that I'm meeting with or speaking out to, I'm fairly certain I LinkedIn everyone on this panel right now just to see um, and connect. But that's another way that you can utilize your um, your LinkedIn to find sales originators. Reach out. Who, you know, see who's out there, see what they're doing, ask questions. Um, I use distribution partners, loan partners, people that you know in the industry. All of those are great, as James mentioned, and I and I love the the industry event angle as well. But but definitely LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a very useful tool for connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you attract them? You attract them by your branding and your name and your your ability to put a foundation around it, your confidence level, as you were speaking to as well, uh, James. I have, we're a publicly traded company, so it's probably a little bit different. Um, some works is than some of the, the other uh, EPCs, but people approach us, um, are asked if we are in need of this, of a sales channel partner. And that's the best way, your reputation and your brand, getting it out there and then having them come to you and ask you if they can sell for you. Ryan, any thoughts there? Yeah, just on attracting a good originator. I think it really comes down to focusing on on quality of installation and, and managing the process. Um, from what I understand, the way that these originators get paid is by the installer helping to move things along in the process during the project timeline, and you know providing necessary documentation uh, and staying on top of those project timelines to make sure you hit those milestones like notice to proceed and things like that. So I've just heard anecdotally from some sales organizations that they. Obviously like it when the contractor's on top of that and is moving things along so that they don't have to be feel like they're like constantly bugging the contractor to kind of speed things along so that they can get paid. Yeah, great points. We have a, a statement from from Edward. He says, I'm a 22-year-old solar company um, and they're installing in Palmetto and he's having trouble finding sales orgs to partner with. They make plenty of profit, um, and but he's really trying to figure out how to grow, and sales orgs seem to be the most difficult point. Uh, anyone want to uh, address Edward's statement? James, I see you're, you're off mute. Maybe I'll just ask you. Yeah, so you know, my, my first question to Edward is, you know, have you set up your business to attract these sales orgs, right? Do, do you have the proper tools and services in place, right? Do you, do you have the right financing partners already on your platform to offer sales orgs? Do you have, you know, certain software design services, right? I mean, ultimately sales orgs might have their preference, right? But if, if you don't have the infrastructure built to support sales orgs from the get-go, it's going to be very difficult to attract these sales orgs, right? Um, and, and, and convince them that you're the right partner for them. So I think that's the first question that needs to be answered is aside from just approaching sales organizations says, hey, let's, let's talk about potentially partnering together. It's as a business, are you even set up to have that conversation? So that's number one. Number two, in terms of attracting sales orgs, again, it goes back to what Valerie said, right? A lot of it is just roll up your sleeves, right? And, and, and get in the dirt type of type of sales strategy. Like you have to be going, you know, utilizing LinkedIn, you know, Valerie made a very good point, right? Like you see sales originators on LinkedIn all the time, right? Talking about 
you know, their sales. Um, another area that, you know, I recently was exposed to is, you know, you have a lot of these sales originators on the solar side utilizing platforms like Instagram and, and Snapchat, right? Becoming influencers in the solar industry around sales. And, you know, I mean, they're attracting salespeople, right? By, by putting out content, social media content and, and, and um, you know, really trying to drive their branding and their message as to why solar or storage is important um, for the future. And, and, and those are areas, right? You could follow people on social media. I, I get it, right? Like, you know, you, you, you associate that typically with something maybe that's not business driven, but, you know, it's very much so becoming a part of our business, right? right. Social media and the content that uh, these sales origination, excuse me, sales origination companies or individuals put out and, you know, putting yourself in the middle eventually is going to help you lead to those discussions, um, lead to those introductions to organizations that you might may want to partner with in the future. Yeah. Great. Good thoughts. You know, and, and Valerie yeah. Edward said after, after this meeting, he's going to, he's going to hop on LinkedIn and get that started. He hasn't tried that yet. So great suggestion. See, you have your hand up again. Do you want to add something to that? Um, I love what James is talking about, about being the company with the infrastructure in place and being ready for that sales channel partnership. That also includes having a Yelp page, having a good website, having tools that the sales originator can use um, to push your company forward. It's really asking yourself, why is your company um, different than the other companies? That that differentiator is something that a sales uh, organization can use to sell your company, not just product or price. And so having wrapping your head around those types of things that go along with your mission, vision, values of the company that you have now and the company you're trying to create, that will attract sales channel partners and, and solidify your relationship with them because it's difficult for uh, someone to approach you and say, I'm a, I'm a sales originator, but yet you have nothing in place to, to help them gain the market share. Mm-hmm. Great. And I think, you know, we'll probably talk more about process. It's really all about process. If you have a good process set up, you can protect yourselves. You could protect your brand. You could protect the homeowner. You can make sure that you're going to work well with your sales organization. So really figuring out what that process is going to be is probably essential. And we, and I want to talk a little bit more about that with the onboarding point, but to Rachel's thought before, one of the potential reasons for working with outside sales orgs is this like, cost reduction. And I want to make sure that we, we get to the, the, the margin compression point. Like Rachel, can you talk to, to us a little bit about that? When we're talking pros and cons, like it's, these aren't necessarily easy wins. Like we're talking about all the things you have to figure out and margin compression is one of those that you brought up, you know, the other day as well to me. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that a lot of installers are, need to be thinking about when they're thinking about working with originators is if you're using originators as a means to grow your business, like you need to be thinking about not just with, you know, customer acquisition costs and your originator costs, but like, how are you going to be managing your margin as you scale from say 10 to 40 jobs a month or 40 to hundred, et cetera. Because I think um, one pattern that I've seen during growth is people assume that they can maintain the same margin as they grow or that it will naturally come together that they will automatically start saving money as they get larger. But what often happens is as they scramble to grow and efficiencies get created, um, I don't think you should assume that you're inherently going to save money when you use originators. It really depends on the nature of the contracts you set up. You know, do you agree to a price point that is actually sustainable for your business to, you know, sell your deals at? Um, how who owns the risk? Because if the sales organization promises um, 
items that are not included in the contract and then you have an unhappy customer, unless it's otherwise defined, it's usually the EPC that's left holding the bag and because whoever owns the warranty and is the brand that the customer is going to recognize and, you know, put, you know, hate mail or hate reviews online about, mm-hmm. you know, you're the, you're the company that's going to get the complaints to the Better Business Bureau. You're like very often the EPC, if, unless they account for these risks in their contracts or in their processes with, in terms of how the customer gets handed off, very often people assume there's going to be a lot more savings that come from working with originators than, they're, than actually manifest. And there are definitely worst case scenarios where you see you know, post-funding cancellations from financiers because of substantial misrepresentation of, con- you know, contract terms um, from financiers. And, it, and very often it's the EPC who's left holding the bag. So I, I think I'm really excited to have us talk about processes, systems, and, and everything else that we can do to make sure that if you decide to go forward with this business model, that you're doing so in a way that accounts for making sure that it is an engine of growth for you, not just a, a new risk pool that you haven't accounted for. Great. Thank you, Rachel. And J- James, and then let's get to Valerie too. Yeah, and just to continue off, Rachel said, you know, one thing that you also need to consider is as you build and scale in, in, you know, a platform to support originators, um, there are costs associated with that, right? It's, it's not just, hey, I'm going to reduce my customer acquisition costs and, 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 and just build a ton of jobs, right? Like, you know, as you go from supporting and, you know, if you go for 10 installs a month to 40 to 80 within six months, there are costs and some of it can be significant, right? You're just talking about project management costs, right? That it's not just about sending a crew out or finding a crew and sending it out. It's about managing pipeline and, and making sure that, you know, the velocity of jobs are moving in, in accordance to the agreement that you've signed with these originators. Um, you know, it's one thing to, you know, work with sales partners, grow with them and, 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 and do your job, but it's also about scaling with them as well, because they might work with you now, but, you know, if you can't support their business, you know, that's right. what it is. It's a partnership, right? So, you know, there's no, you know, guarantee that they'll work with you later. So, you know, I think it's very important that, you know, you take a holistic look at, in, in, with regards to, you know, is my business capable of supporting this partnership? Because someone who sells a hundred jobs a month might excite you and say, wow, you know, this is going to help my business grow, but can you support that? Right. Do you right. have the vendor partnerships, right? Do you have subcontracting partnerships in place if needed, if, if this growth scales really quickly? And if that answer is no, right, that'll be a very, very short-term relationship. That right. Can- yeah. Maybe you can win that partnership, but then you have to retain that partnership too. Valerie, I see you have your hand up. Thanks for those thoughts, James. To Rachel's comment, um, it's so true. The perceived cost reduction utilizing this model um, is going to be very specific to each company because you have to keep them in mind that you will need to pay the par price and the outer prices that they set and agree to. And that might conflict with your company's profitability cap. And you also will need to purchase potentially, depending on how you negotiate your contracts, the materials that they feel are easy and best to sell, which also might conflict with what you're able to procure cost effectively and based on availability. So generally, the commissions provided in this model well exceed a commission rate that you would normally pay to your own in-house sales team as well. And yes, to James, there is a very robust infrastructure that you'll need to build in this model, um, as well as having someone manage your um, sales channel partnerships or multiple managers, depending on how many you actually bring in-house. The sales channel partner agreements have to be crafted and managed. Commissions still need to be processed and tracked. Uh, Meetings still need to be held. Uh, The plan has to be put in place. And depending on your agreement and partnerships, 
you might be asked to pay for co-marketing costs as well. I mean, I've definitely been asked by a sales organization to cough up some money for flyers or additional uh, marketing that they want to put out there, which in turn will absolutely benefit our company. But it's not quite um, always, and depending on your structure and your contract and how you negotiate, but it's not always the sales or the savings that uh, that people think that it is. Mm-hmm. We're getting a few questions from Preston in the chat, and I want to try to address a few of these. Uh, one of the questions is, how does the new environment of M&A change this ecosystem? Valerie, I don't know if you want to try to take a stab at that or anyone else. I think that that's a valid question, but just the landscape that we're in as a, as a country um, and as a state is changing this e- ecosystem. We are doing things differently than we did before. There's not the ability um, to go in-house to sell anymore. It, it needs to be virtual or phone sales. Um, there's more social media marketing and advertising being had now because of, because of COVID and because of restrictions. Um, we pivoted immediately to doing um, exterior conduit runs, for example, as an EPC versus going into um, people's homes. And just the, just the environment that we're currently in because of COVID and, and because of restrictions, I think is, is as impactful. Great. James, you want to jump in there real quick? Yeah. Um, I, I don't really see it changing that, that much. Right. I, I think just sales is sales, right? Like how it changes is from a technology standpoint, maybe like Valerie mentioned, or, you know, with regards to systems and processes. But when you talk about solar sales originations, really, it's, 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 you know, it's a small business, right? Like it's people going out saying, I want to start my own business, right? And I want to train, hire and recruit individuals to work with me, you know, in this vision of trying to, you know, sell solar and storage, right? So un- unless if you see that dynamic changing, right, which is, a, you know, a, a bigger picture around business as a whole, um, you know, I, I don't really see it changing at least anytime shortly. I think how this can change is if regulations start coming in, right? If, if there's more regulations that, that come in um, from the government level, right, where it makes it extremely you know, more difficult, right, to, to sell as a 1099 or as a, you know, corporation that doesn't have um, people on payroll or, or, or things where there's so many, so much more compliance requirements that you need, you know, to, to invest in a lot of those things. Um, I think that's where potentially you can see a shift in dynamics where people start caring a little more about having their own internal staff, sales staff. But, um, you know, with respect to all the, you know, M&A or companies that you hear about that are, you know, that are going to be merging or, you know, being acquired. Um, I, I don't really foresee that impacting, you know, the, the origination model um, at all. Okay, great. So I, as we move towards the, the bottom third of the show, I do want to talk about some of the details, like best practices for onboarding new sales organizations. Let's talk about that a little bit. James, maybe we can stay on you. Can you, can you flesh us out some of the things that contractors really need to be thinking about as they design these onboarding processes for, for external sales orgs? As you, you know, if you've, if you've identified somebody that you may want to partner, partner with, and, you know, maybe you've come to a, you know, verbal or handshake agreement or whatnot to move forward. um, You know, the first very simple, but I think steps that, you know, sometimes are missed out on is make sure that you check them out for legitimacy, right? Are they a legitimate organization? Do they have the proper sales licensing in place? If that particular 
state requires those types of licenses? Um, you know, do they have the proper insurances in place, right? Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of online resources that obviously can help you find out that information. Look them up, right? Look out, look for their reviews, right? Whether it's BBB, Yelp, um, or whatnot, just to see, you know, what type of company, and, you know, do they have a lot of complaints, you know, or do they have a lot of great reviews, right? Just showing what type of company they are. So I think at the bare minimum, you need to do homework about that organization right. and the leadership of that organization. So that's part one. I think part two also is being transparent and communicating with respect to how this partnership's going to work. And as Valerie mentioned, there's agreements you can put in place. But, you know, aside from the agreement, contractual, legal, contractual, you know, documentation, right? Like you got to talk about and understand how that sales organization works. How do they sell? What process do they go through? What tools are they using, right? How are they verifying production for that homeowner? You know, th those are some of the things that are going to protect you, you know, down the line, as Rachel mentioned, right? That risk after the sale with respect to warranty information, production information, and basically, you know, having the homeowner uh, receive essentially what, you know, they're being sold. So, you know, understanding their sales process, what's the methodology, right? What's the, you know, process with how you go from sitting at the kitchen table or whatnot uh, to the point where they're signing an agreement and moving forward to install, um, you know, that's going to help you understand as a business, hey, do we need to change anything from our end, right? To make sure that we are supporting their business and we are building in our processes to protect us, Right. Yeah. Um, so that that's probably number two, I would say is make sure you understand your partner. Mm -hmm. uh, and then number three is your partner needs to understand you, right? So this is how we work, right? So during the onboarding, if your sales organization doesn't understand how you work, you're going to get into this nightmare about homeowner experience, right? Yeah. The worst thing that can happen through this partnership is the homeowner doesn't have the proper expectations set and they don't have a great customer experience. Um, because from a sales org standpoint, you're looking at that homeowner as for future sales, right? Yeah. Future referral opportunities. And from an install standpoint, you're looking at that homeowner, you know, at least in the state of California, it's a 10 year, you know, it's a, it's, you're tied to them at least a minimum of 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. from, a, from a legal standpoint. So um, I think having that knowledge and understanding of each party, making sure you're sitting down and talking about these things through the onboarding process um, is going to be critical to a successful partnership. Wonderful. Thanks for those points, James. Valerie, um, let, let's go to you. Do you want to jump in there, Rachel? Yeah, I, I was going to say also um, training, making sure that the sales reps um, have access to training materials to um, understand the the financial tools that you're able to make available to them and the, um, you know, the materials that you can install. Um, I've definitely heard stories about originators who sell equipment that the, or sell um, installations on roof types that the installer doesn't like to install on. You know, there, there can be lots of different gaps that can just create inefficiencies and frustration for both sides of the business. Mm -hmm, for sure. Valerie, Brian, Brian, I want to come to you with a compliance requirement for financiers. Valerie, can you get uh, detailed for us here? Like, what are you doing to make sure these, these companies are, you're onboarding them, they understand you, they know your processes. Are you using specific design tools, you know, with them? Do those have any constraints? Do you have like specific product lines that you only use with them? Yeah. How are you controlling all of that? So it's been an evolving process for sure. And depending on the sales channel partner, there are some nuances that are specific to each one. So for example, we do set uh, the material that we will allow them to sell, um, which helps us for our business model. 
We do set the proper expectation um, in, a, in a stringent contract agreement, which includes all of the adders and what that looks like, including adders like uh, distance. Um, if, it, if there's any project that they want to sell that's 50 miles outside of a hub that we're at, there's a distance adder for that. Um, but making sure that all of those types of nuances are very well spelled out in the agreements that you have, and then also making sure that the, the par price um, and materials and execution is all discussed. The other thing is really understanding their ethics and making sure that they understand yours. I've had to cap sales channel partners from selling uh, a solar system as high as $7 a watt. And that's not acceptable in our industry. So we have to protect our customers and protect them and have our sales channel partners protect them as well. So it's a lot of uh, training. We have a PowerPoint that we provide that encompasses um, the expectation of the company, what we will and won't allow. Um, and we also set up our trainings ourselves for our finance platforms because that relationship is our relationship, not our sales channel partners relationships. So if there's a loan pal, Mosaic, uh, Sunlight, et cetera, training to be had, our company will set that up and our company will make sure that they're fully trained on that. And then we manage to it as well. The other really key component in California is HIS license. You are required to have that license to sell and it has to be attached to your EPC license. So managing the ins and outs of the sales channel partner who may have a high turnover of employees is something that you'll have to do. You'll have to put someone in place to make sure that they're taken on and off of your license and that to verify that they have their own sales licenses. SGIP is another um, possible compliance issue. Understanding that that rebate program, conveying the actual proper information, following it down, helping the customer um, you know, navigate that. All of that really falls on to um, you as a company, in addition to the warranty, of course, um, responsibilities. But those types of things still fall onto your company, even though the sales channel partner may field some of those things, because what you're saying to a customer, they're not going to go back to your sales channel partner and say, you misled me. They're going to come to the EPC. Right. There's just a myriad of compliance issues across you know, state, federal, every which way that you really will need to stay on top of and, and drive and manage to. Mm-hmm. Brian, I'd love to get your follow-up thoughts from Valerie, but also, you know, any uh, suggestions on me making sure like com- finance compliance requirements uh, are being followed. Yeah, I think it largely follows up with what Valerie was saying um, anyway, but the just general things to be aware of when it comes to um, kind of marrying the relationship between financiers and these third-party sales orgs. Um, most financiers have uh, all, all really have some capital limitations um, when it comes to providing funding for installations in certain geographies, depending on the you know financial product, depending on the the loan tenor interest rates being offered, adoption for LMI customers and you know, FICO requirements, as well as generally just the product offerings that you're that those organizations are able to sell, whether it's you know battery storage, energy efficiency, packaging things uh, together with the PV sale. Um, so that's generally just good to be aware of and making sure that uh, your your orgs the, are, are aware of those requirements. And then just more broadly, um, most financiers have some sort of a price cap um, when it comes to the the dollar per watt that they want to, uh, those organizations to be selling at. So you know those are some things that you should be uh, communicating to your sales partners in terms of the financier requirements. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anyone has any, uh, we got a question about uh, just contracts, you know, how much control, maybe Valerie, are you having around proposals, production estimates, all of that things? Are, are you giving any leeway to the to the external sales companies to, to influence that? So again, it's been an evolving model since I first came aboard with Sunworks. Um, in the beginning, really, our sales channel partners were doing such a majority of the business that they um, were able to dictate the way that they wanted things to be. 
what I have um, put in place since then is it is, it's our model and we want them to be part of it and we want them to be successful with us, but we have the responsibility, so it's our model. So we use Aurora platform because it's more detailed. We insist that they use it as well. Um, we've partnered with uh, certain sales channel partners at a different sales level to even pay for seats for the, for the company, but it's our contract, our proposal tool. We get the final approval and we make sure that, um, that it's done with the customer's uh, best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. Rachel, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen a wide range of installers do this differently, but so much of the homeowner expectation is determined by what's in the proposal. And, um, you know, some design tools really allow you to adjust how optimistic your production estimates are. Um, Some give sales reps a lot less flexibility in tweaking production estimates. So I've talked to some installers who kind of are rigid in terms of allowing only a certain set of tools that don't allow sales reps to kind of fudge the numbers. Um, some in, some EPCs definitely require that their proposal tool is used. Um, sometimes they have their own team putting the proposals together and providing those to the sales team, though that's a whole nother level of coordination and support to make sure that that happens promptly. So very often it comes down to, you know, just making your that agreement up front where you're sharing risk with the with the sales organization should installer expectations not or should homeowner expectations not be met um, mm-hmm. can drive good behavior, you know, if that kind of agreement is possible to negotiate. Mm-hmm. James, to the homeowner expectation um, experience, like the homeowner experience, that that's a great you really need to be focused on that. Any suggestions for that customer handoff? Like once the sales org is ready to hand off the, the project to you, like how is that managed? Any, any suggestions there? Yeah, so it all comes back, you know, to kind of the first statement about expertise, right? Like a- as you have discussions with, you know, your sales partners, right? There needs to be a very clear understanding that, you know, we're going to let you guys do what you're good at. And we would hope that you guys let us do what we're good at. Right. And, you know, if that has to be contractually written out, I would highly recommend just contractually writing out what are the services that each organization is responsible for? Because each sales organization is going to have different answers to that question. Right. I know some sales organizations that want to control the entire homeowner communication um, from front to end, right? Mm -hmm. I know some that says after we have a contract signed, here you go, right? You guys take it to the end and we'll show up when it's time to, you know, flip on the switch for, for commissioning and, 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 and that's it. Right. So I think setting clear expectations of here's what you're responsible for. Here's what we're responsible is very important. But at the same time, as an installer, you really need to drive home the fact that, Here's what we're good at. Here's what we're experts at. And here's where we're going to help your business, right? And, and if there's a mutual understanding that that's the process or that's the protocol as to how we're going to grow and scale our business together, then you're not going to run into any, any issues. Where, the issue, where, where you run into issues is if that clear, it's not clearly defined from the get-go, number one. And then number two, you don't have the proper process in place to support what you've clearly defined from the get-go. Right. Great. Thanks, James. Um, yeah, can go I ahead. Can I add one quick tip to build on something James said? So yes, please. one process that I've heard from a few installers that have been working with originators a long time that has worked well for catching a gap between what's in the contract and what the homeowner expects based on what was discussed at the kitchen table is um, very often when an EPC takes over a contract, um, they have to 
contact the homeowner to, you know, of course, you know, schedule installation, get paperwork signed for the utility to get paperwork signed for, you know, the AHJ, the, for the permitting process. In that process, sometimes they insert a few questions to just check what's on the contract against what the homeowner expects in terms of production or bill estimates, or just even understanding what the ITC means to that homeowner. Um, I, I haven't seen a uniform um, number of what questions to include because you don't want it to get to be too long and onerous, but sometimes doing just a little quality assurance at the time when you're already talking to the homeowner mm. um, in the handoff process can help catch gaps between what you have written down and what the homeowner is actually expecting. That's a great point. Checklist, checklist, checklists. Yeah, Valerie, do you want to add? One other um, tip is that we utilize is we do not accept a contract until my contract review team reviews it. So a sales, per, a sales channel partner can give a contract over to us and then it's reviewed to see where there are gaps or any errors or any problems or anything they might've you know, written in the notes on the side um, that we, we won't agree to or allow to. So it's really making sure that you have that control over whether or not you accept the contract that they provide. Great points. And we have about four minutes left now. Um, I did want to get to Tony's question Uh, It's the only outstanding question, I believe. And this is to Brian, as long as we have Brian, our our data guru here. Brian, Tony's question is, he's basically saying, I thought customer acquisition costs were going to go down. What's the deal? That it doesn't happen. And he mentions a Woodmac report. So maybe just touch on that real quick. Sure. Yeah. I'm going to preface this with saying I, I was not the author on that report. Um, but, um, I'm, I'm generally aware of kind of our stance on customer acquisition. Yes. We, I think for a few years have kind of said that the costs should come down eventually and maybe have overestimated to the extent that that's happened. I think there's been some, uh, over optimism on the developments in in the industry that could actually drive down costs. Um, so what we have actually seen is, um, you know, stagnation in, in some, some companies actually seeing increases in costs as well, um, depending on their, their strategy, um, which I, you know, I touched on at the top of the call, it depends on the install. Um, but what I will say is what we are starting to see is a lot of hopefulness around uh, just the, the transformation that the industry has gone through because of largely because of COVID and digital capabilities, um, how that has really created a lot of efficiencies. Uh, I think we'll start to see some of those softer costs related to customer acquisition come down over the next couple of years. Um, it feels like we're really kind of at that turning point in the industry now. Awesome. Thanks for answering Tony's question. Appreciate it. So I want to start to wrap up or I want to wrap up now and ask everyone for their top two suggestions for solar contractors on on this topic. But I do want to thank our panelists, Valerie Serrato, Vice President of Residential Business at Sunworks. Thank you so much for joining us on our first town hall. James, uh, Director of Enterprise Partnerships and Partner Development in Sonova. Thanks for joining us. Brian, uh, as always, it's been great to have you, research analyst at Wood McKenzie Power and Renewables, and Rachel Shapira, our very own uh, Director of Residential Finance at Baywa. Thanks for joining us. So yeah, Rachel, sticking with you, top two suggestions for our solar contractor audience out there. Whatever business decision you make about how to scale uh, with or without originators, don't assume that it means it will save you money. You have to be very tactical in your forecasts and and account for all the costs and risks. And if you can, talk to other um, folks you know in the industry who've tried this to learn to get more opportunity to learn from mistakes other people have made and be very clear about who owns the risk when there's a gap between homeowner expectations and execution, um, because that is the that is the high risk point with this model. And that is the thing that you need to manage to be successful with it. Great points. James, how about you? Yeah. So 
you know, I'm going to focus more on the business development part since, you know, that's kind of my mm -hmm. world. Um, I would say if this is something that, you know, a contractor installer that you're interested in pursuing, I think it's very important to really identify and even document kind of, you know, what your mission, vision, you know, plan, value propositions, processes are like before you even start making those conversations happen. One thing that sales organizations really like is they like installers who know what they're doing, right? And who perform and who execute what they say they're going to do, um, which is why you see a lot of sales organizations bouncing around all the time, right? You know, to really, you know, think this out really thoughtfully, right? And intentionally um, is really going to help you identify whether this is something that you want to get into or not. Because again, you know, when we talk about costs, right? Yes, you're, you're, you're reducing your front end costs from a customer acquisition side, but it could be pretty significant, right? When, when you look at it from an EPC standpoint, um, if you're not prepared and if your business is not prepared to, to, to support this type of model. So um, I would say be very intentional and in thinking through, hey, is this something I want to do? Write it down. And, and more importantly, that's also going to help you as you go out and start prospecting potential um, originator partnerships is now you have a story as to why you're the right partner. So hmm. that would be my, um, my kind of takeaway if, yeah. if this is something that you want to get involved in. Homework. What's your story? I really like that. Brian, how about you? Last thought? Sure. We kind of touched on some of these um, and we've talked about them before in prior conversations, but one, um, just technology and software platforms, capabilities, you want to make sure that whatever systems you have on your end uh, and whatever uh, the, the originator is using, they can talk to each other, uh, create that seamless sales process for both your your the reps and the the, cus the customer. Um, and then secondly, uh, as I said before, just making sure you're aware of the, the limitations and uh, guidelines from your finance year. If you are working with a third party or originator, you want to make sure that that originator knows what uh, those limitations are in terms of capital requirements, what products you're able to finance, um, and then, you know, the different geographies um, and, and customer segments that you, uh, you want to offer your products to. Great. Valerie, we'll give you the last word. And I want to mention to our audience that we'll leave the Zoom window open uh, so you can pull the links to the different events. And so Valerie, yeah, take us, take us away. I would just say really weigh out your options from a business and financial perspective, keeping your goals for the future in mind and understand what each model brings to the table um, with cost versus control. And then just know when to pivot if something's not working. Great. Thank you to everyone who took the time today. Thanks to our audience. It's great to be back uh, with our solar community for another month. And we, yeah, we'll see you next time. You're welcome, Edward. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Preston. All right. Bye, everybody.